So as we begin these series of conferences, we'd like to begin with a prayer composed by St. Therese. I think one of her most beautiful prayers. We're going to pray it in sections, so at the beginning of each conference we'll pray part of this. So today, we'll go ahead and pray the first three paragraphs of this together. Name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O my God, most blessed Trinity, I desire to love thee and to make thee loved, to labor for the glory of Holy Church by saving souls still on earth and by delivering those who suffer in purgatory. I desire to accomplish thy will perfectly and to attain the degree of glory which thou hast prepared for me in thy kingdom. In one word, I desire to be a saint, but I know that I am powerless, and I implore thee, O my God, to be thyself my sanctity. Since thou hast so loved me as to give me thine only Son, to be my Savior and my spouse, the infinite treasures of his merits are mine. To thee I offer them with joy, beseeching thee to see me <clears throat> only in the face of Jesus, <clears throat> and heart burning with love. Again I offer thee all the merits of the saints, in heaven and on earth, their acts of love and those of the holy angels. And finally I offer thee, O blessed Trinity, the love and the merits of the Holy Virgin, my most dear mother, it is to her I entrust my oblation, begging her to present it to thee. St. Therese, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today, before we begin our talk, just wanted to say how honored I felt to be asked to go ahead and present this conference. As you know, the previous presenter was not able to be here, and so I was actually on vacation in Iowa, in a remote part of Iowa, and my cell phone didn't work there at all. And so Father Coulter called and said, and this was on, I think it was a Friday, he called and he said, I really need someone to give this retreat. And you were recommended. And so I'm going to give you two days to think and pray about it. And then give me your answer. So I got the message on Sunday. <laughs> and I said, oh, so I get basically about one minute to think and pray about it. And so, of course, I was very uh, pleased to be offered to give this retreat. I am myself a third order Carmelite, and I love the Carmelite saints. I love Carmelite spirituality, and I love to share it with others and uh, be able to allow that to be something to assist and help uh, each and every person in their spiritual journey. I always say the Carmelite order, it is the, one of the smallest orders of the church, and yet it's produced some of the greatest saints and one of those greatest saints is St. Therese herself. She would be the first one to say 
that that is not so, but we ourselves uh, get to basically overrule her on that. And, of course, the first sign of any saint is that they don't really believe they are a saint. I remember St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta saying so many times when reporters would tell her, you know the church is already thinking you're a saint. People already call you a saint. And she goes, I wish they wouldn't do that. She said, because then they put me in some special category and they think I'm doing something that they can't do. And she goes, all I'm doing is living the gospel and everyone can do that. And I thought, what great wisdom. And of course, St. Teresa of Calcutta, taking her namesake from St. Therese, and really and truly you see a lot of, in the spirituality of St. Mother Teresa, a lot of what she draws from this, this beautiful little saint, the little flower. And so I've given you a little bit of a photo album, um, some different pictures of St. Therese at different times in her life, some of the pictures of life in the convent. This is very rare to have these kinds of pictures, and it was actually her sister, Pauline, who took these pictures and basically kept them, preserved them, and so that we can get kind of a glimpse into her life in the monastery and be able to also see her. I love this one of her as a little child. Um, right here, she's on the right. And you just see in that photo um, this almost kind of self-assured, um, very, very proper uh, young lady who you can see has a determination already in, in, in how she presents herself. And we're going to look into that uh, a little bit more in the first talk today. And so I give you these just to kind of make Therese a little more real for us. As you can see, you know, the, the pictures that we, as a church, go ahead and, and paint. Um, oftentimes we, we basically more or less kind of take that way of artists where they, they enhance the, the picture and they, they make the person just a little more beautiful. We all kind of think, well, hopefully somebody does that for me, right? Because it's like... And then you see Therese in some of these, these, these photos and, you know, she would not be on the cover of some magazine. And she has a, she has a very humble appearance and yet... You know, you see her as a young woman, you know, she, she did have uh, a, a very beautiful features, but you see as she becomes a religious sister, you know, she very much wants to, to hide that, and, and, and at times she almost gives a, like, homely appearance, and I think she does that on purpose, because she wants us to not be looking at her, she wants us to always be looking at Christ. And that is really and truly where she wants to lead us because ultimately she knows it's Christ who leads us to the Father. And seeing God as that loving Father, that is at the, the root of the little way. And so 
As we begin, one of the things I want to be able to share is that the story of the soul is really a marvelous book, and it's it's not a book to be read like a novel. It's a book to be read and meditated upon and kind of used throughout the year and to really pause and meditate and to reflect on the different things that she writes about. It, it is filled with wisdom. And at times it may come across as, why is she telling us this or why is she giving us so much detail about this, this little thing that really doesn't seem to be anything? And then you see from that small part of her life, that little story she shares, uh, a tremendous lesson that is found within it. And so I definitely encourage you to buy a copy of this. Um, this is from ICS. They have the, the best publications of these writings of the Carmelite Saints. Uh, it's the Institute of Carmelite Studies, and their translations are just very good, and they have extensive footnotes as well, which are really helpful. And so my particular copy here, you know, it's falling apart. It's kind of like a good Baptist Bible. You know, it just, uh, it looks well used, which, you know, and I have. I've, I've read this many times over the years, and I keep going back to it, and I, I find more wisdom from it each time. And it's amazing that this, this small, obscure saint um, can teach us so much just by her telling her story. And so... Let us go ahead and begin to dive into what is this little way that she speaks to us about. So the retreat, of course, is entitled The Little Way, and that is a phrase coined by St. Therese of Lisieux herself. She basically wanted to find a nice, simple, straight, easy way for people to go to God. And she was not interested in real complicated uh, spiritual programs or overly intellectual approaches. Um, So it is my goal in this retreat to help you to understand in a deeper way what she meant by this phrase and, and how to practice it daily in our lives. Now, to understand the little way, we must first take the time to look more closely at the little flower herself a nickname that St. Therese gave to herself, a name by which most of the world knows her. Now, while much we know about St. Therese can be found in her autobiography, The Story of a Soul, we'll also be spending considerable time with those uh, resources that give us other insights into this young Carmelite saint that come to us through the writings of her religious sisters, her biological family, and through the many, many letters that she wrote in her short lifetime. One of the first things we become aware of in reading St. Therese's autobiography is that she comes across to some readers as somewhat self-absorbed and kind of a spoiled brat, and something that St. Therese herself would not entirely disagree with. Her mother... Zelia wrote in a letter about her, As for the little imp, it's hard to know how she'll turn out. She's so little 
so scatterbrained. She has more intelligence than her sister, Celine. I wonder what Celine thought of that. <laughs> but she's not as sweet, and her hard-headedness is practically unshakable. When she says no, nothing can make her give it up. You could put her in the cellar for a whole day, and she'd go to sleep there rather than to say yes. So, of course, today, if you put a child in a cellar, you'd be talking to child services. It's like, <laughs> back then you had a little more leadway. So there is always a clear distinction that needs to be made about obstinacy, sometimes known as tenacity. It can be both a virtue and a vice. When it comes to professing Jesus Christ and being faithful to his church, tenacity can be a virtue. Insofar as one will not compromise or deny the faith, even at the cost of one's life. On the other hand, stubbornness, especially as concerns forgiveness, can be a vice. For example, when one stubbornly refuses to forgive someone. Her mother also wrote, Yet she has a heart of gold. She's full of hugs and says exactly what she thinks. She would never lie for all the gold in the world. All she talks about is God. She wouldn't miss saying her prayers for anything. She comes up with answers that are quite unusual for her age. So like any of us, as we reflect back on our own childhoods, there are favorable and unfavorable aspects. One of the most important distinctions we must make is the difference between childish and childlike. Jesus tells us in the scriptures, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want to share with you this painting. It's from my own private collection. And it is just... Uh, when I first saw it and, and decided to purchase it, I was just drawn to how much we can learn by just examining this calling of the children, the coming of the children to Jesus. And there's so much going on in this painting. And one of the first things that struck me was of all the different children here, there's this one child that Jesus is holding. And how's that child dressed? The child isn't dressed. The child is completely naked. Meaning those who are the closest to Christ are stripped of everything worldly, are stripped of everything sinful, are stripped of everything, are completely empty and only have that heart for Jesus. And that's why this child here 
He's the closest to Jesus because this child has let go of everything and surrendered everything to Jesus. And so it's such a wonderful depiction of that. And you see, of course, here one of the apostles trying to push the children away. Remember, they were trying to get to Jesus and the apostles were like, stay away. And especially in Jewish culture, you know, for children to go running up to somebody who's considered to be like an authority figure, um, that, was, that was frowned upon. You know, there was, a, there was to be a great reverence and respect. And so for them to go running up to him and be hanging on to him, and, you know, it, it was considered to be unseemly. So the apostles are, stay away. And you see the apostles are trying to push, literally push the children away, keep them, prevent them. And that is an understanding of how we, we keep ourselves away from God. Of how do we push ourselves away from God? In what ways do I, we block ourselves from really and truly embracing Jesus and God the Father in this way? And so, it's just so beautiful. And you see children of all different ages, and, and they're all just kind of mixed in together and some of them, you know, reaching out with those arms of complete trust, that complete surrender. Another uh, very important lesson in, in having that childlike trust and, and just how this child here, you know, reaching, wants to be picked up, wants to be drawn to Jesus. Just that complete trust of, yes, you can take me. Uh, and so it is so wonderful and so I uh, always think art is a great way to teach many things. And just talking to one of the retreatants last night about beauty, truth, and goodness, the, the, the three things that go together, and those three things really and truly reveal to us God. And it's why you go into a beautiful church, you're just, you're just drawn up, you're awed, you're the transcendent, the reverent, it's, it's there. And so, you know, art itself can help us to do that. And so I'll leave this painting here throughout the retreat. And so you can use it for your own meditation. And feel free to come up and, and look at the small details and, and just kind of ponder, you know, which child am I in there? And, you know, how far away am I from Jesus? And am I really desiring to get close and do I have that trust and have I let go of everything? So this bold statement by our Lord that he makes in the gospel, it is clear that if we do not become like children, that is humble and trusting, then we'll never enter heaven. That's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say maybe. He doesn't say, well, th there's some exceptions. He just says, if you don't, you will not enter heaven. Plain and simple. Very direct. And as he has to be with us, you know, as children, you suggest to a child, 
you know, I suggest that you uh, clean up your room. What's a child going to do? <laughs> you suggested, okay, well, that's, that's fine. It's a nice suggestion, but I'm not going to follow it. This is a... No, you tell a child to clean up their room. And then if they refuse, you do like uh, Dr. Ray. So those of you who might be familiar with Dr. Ray on EWTN, and um, he's so delightful to listen to. He had a teenage daughter who didn't want to clean up her room, and she was obstinate. She was stubborn about it. And so instead of trying to tell her three, four times and just becoming wearied as a parent and having these little verbal tug-of-wars, he just went in with a huge, the biggest trash sack he could find. He just went in there, and he just started taking her stuff that he knew she really liked, and he started putting it in the trash sack. And, of course, she just totally freaks out because, what are you doing? What are you doing? He goes, if you won't clean your room, then I will. And at that point, she's like, stop, stop, Dad. (laughs) I will clean my room. (laughs) And so she did, and that's that's how he got it accomplished. And so this, this understanding that as children, you know, we ourselves, if we're going to be childlike, we also have to listen to what we're being told and to really respond to that, especially when it's about our eternal salvation. So we all know what it is to be childish. Just watch children on the playground. At times, children can be cruel. They call each other names. They talk mean about other children. They exclude certain children from playing with their group. And even at times resort to bullying and physical violence. And the latest mean thing to do is to dock somebody. I didn't know what this was um, until I was listening to a news report. And it was about the um, Nicholas uh, Sandman. He was the the young man at the pro-life rally and the Native American who got in his face and was banging his drum. And then they said a bunch of false reports to the media, and the media was happy to report those false reports that the kids, you know, had surrounded him and were keeping him from being able to move. And in fact, he had actually come up to them and confronted them. And then a hate group nearby began to call them horrible things. And... Nicholas Sandman, great role model for young people. He stood there and he practiced the little way. He really did. He stood there and he didn't say anything back. He didn't do anything physical. He just stood there. He smiled. He just was probably at that moment praying for that person and praying for his fellow classmates and basically really and truly showed to us how to practice that little way in what would have been one of the most difficult circumstances. I cannot say personally, being German and such, whether or not I would have responded in the same way. I'm hoping I would. But it was amazing to see this this teenager 
gives such a great example. And really and truly being confronted in that way and then responding with that little way. And of course, what they ended up doing was they, they, they began to dock him. That was what was going around. And to dock somebody means that you go, you find out where they live and you find out where they work. And then what you do is you, you, you threaten the business where they work at. You say, we won't do business with you anymore and we're going to boycott you. And then you go to the person's house and you harass them and you, you basically do all kinds of really kind of um, very uncharitable things uh, to the person at their, their private residence. Uh, and it's a horrible thing. It's a mob mentality. It's, it's, it's fascism at its worst. And, and that is where we have basically as society said that when there's somebody that we disagree with or we don't like, this is now going to be our approach. And it is not uh, an, an approach of an adult. It is not childlike. It is childish. And it is completely against the gospel. And it is the dark side of the childhood. So to be childlike is to be humble, simple, trusting, loving. Is what Jesus meant in the gospel when he says, we must be these things. St. Therese, while understanding that at times she was being childish, though never in a mean way, but more in a selfish way, she would show to the world as she matured what it truly means to be childlike, especially as an adult. One story we're telling at this point is when Therese was on the verge of becoming a young woman, the family had returned from midnight mass, and the custom was to see what gifts had been placed in the shoes by the French version of Santa. But Therese's father had thought that the time had passed for Therese to partake in this childish thing. And Therese, from upstairs, overheard her father saying this and immediately began to cry. Her sister, Celine, told Therese not to go downstairs crying or it would ruin Christmas for everyone. Therese was changed, matured in that moment. She writes, But Therese wasn't the same any longer. Jesus changed her heart. Forcing back my tears, I ran quickly back down the stairs, and restraining my pounding heart, I took my shoes and placing them in front of Papa, joyously took, I took out all the objects, looking happy as a queen. Papa was laughing. He had also become joyful again. Little Therese had regained the strength of soul that she had lost at the age of four and a half, and she was to keep it forever. Later, reflecting on this, Therese wrote, But Jesus, who wanted to show me that I needed to undo these childish shortcomings, also took away these innocent joys from me. Before she got to adulthood, she learned early on as a child 
how difficult, sad, and cruel that the world can be. She writes in her autobiography, I was going to have to pass through the crucible of trials and to suffer, beginning in my childhood, in order to be able to be offered sooner to Jesus. Therese learned early on that suffering is a part of life and that no one gets spared from this. How she responded to the suffering made all the difference. The first part of her suffering came from losing her mother at the tender age of four and a half. One could only imagine what that loss must have done to the heart of this young girl. She writes, I, who had been so lively, so expansive, became timid and mild, sensitive to excess. At eight and a half years, she was sent to school at the Benedictine Academy, or Abbey, and she writes that the five years she spent at that school were the saddest of my life. At nine years old, Teresa's sister, Pauline, who had become a second mother to her, decided to enter the Carmelite order, and Therese was without a mother for a second time. At 10 years of age, Therese was diagnosed with an unknown illness and was extremely ill to the point that the doctor feared for her life. Throughout April and May, Therese suffered from this illness. She writes, All of nature was adorning itself with flowers and breathing gaiety. Only the little flower was languishing and seemed forever wilted. However, she had one son near her, and son was the miraculous statue of the Blessed Virgin that had spoken twice to Mama. And often, quite often, the little flower turned its petals toward that blessed star. Finding no help on earth, poor little Therese had turned toward her heavenly mother. Suddenly, the Blessed Virgin seemed so beautiful to me, so beautiful that I'd never seen anything so beautiful. Then all my sufferings melted away. From that moment on, Therese began to get better. Though she had recovered from her physical ailment, her next suffering would come in the form of a spiritual one. Following her first communion and confirmation, she returned to the boarding school where she was lonely and without friends. It was during this time that Therese would suffer from scrupulosity, an excessive anxiety about sin, especially mortal sin, and the belief that one is destined to hell. Therese writes, It was during my retreat before my second communion that I saw myself assailed by the terrible illness of scruples, excessive fear of having sinned. You would have to pass through this martyrdom in order to understand it well. It would be impossible for me to say what I suffered for a year and a half. Scruples is a kind of spiritual torture in which one believes that the mercy of God is absent, that he or she must constantly be perfect, and anything less will result in being eternally damned. It is a terrible state for any soul to be in. 
And we will see how Therese's experience of this spiritual malady would help her later in forming the little way. So one can see in Therese's life suffering of many kinds. The emotional suffering of losing her mother, then later her second mother, the physical suffering of illness, and the spiritual suffering of scrupulosity. And all of this before she was even 15 years old, the year that she would enter Carmel. Even before she entered Carmel, Therese was filled with a zeal to save souls. She writes, I felt myself consumed with thirst for souls. I was burning with the desire to snatch them from the everlasting flames. We now live in a time and age where belief in God or even religion is wanting, where belief in a real devil is considered childish, where belief in a real hell is discarded as foolish thinking of the past. Yet to Therese, God, Satan, and hell are all very real. And it is becoming her mission to rescue as many souls as she can from the destination of hell. Therese even goes so far as to pray for a murderer on death row named Henri Pranzini. She and her sister Celine prayed fervently for his conversion, and Therese only asked for a sign of repentance simply for her consolation. She writes, My prayer was granted to the letter. The day after his execution, I put my hand on the newspaper. Bronzini had not confessed. He had climbed up onto the scaffold. When suddenly, gripped with a sudden inspiration, he turned back, grabbed a crucifix that the priest was holding up to him, and kissed its sacred wounds three times. Then his soul went to receive the merciful judgment of the one who declares that in heaven there will be more joy for one sinner who repents than for 99 righteous persons who have no need for repentance. This witness of the power of prayer would encourage Therese to devote the rest of her life in fervent prayer for the conversion of souls especially those she considered to be the farthest away from God. It is this prayer with concern for others that we become one of the standards of the little way. And it is one of the first lessons that we learn from the little flower of just how powerful and efficacious our prayers can be, even if we don't always see the direct result of them. To not pray, that is Satan's goal for us. But Therese reminds us not to give up on prayer. And every so often, in God's time and in God's way, God will show to us that our efforts are not in vain. The next test for Therese will be her entry into Carmel. Though she desired to join as early as nine years of age, and it was at the age of four that she already gave herself to Christ. To join at 15 was still out of the ordinary and not recommended. The Carmelites are an austere order that is living very simple, 
disciplined lives with very few comforts in a monastery that they never leave. For a 15-year-old, most thought that life would be too difficult. Yet Therese prevailed. That tenacious spirit would not take no for an answer. When approaching the priest about entering Carmel, he clearly told her no. Yet recognizing that he could not speak for the bishop, he made it clear she could go seek his permission. The bishop also said no. So on a trip to Rome with her father, Therese got a private audience with Pope Leo XIII. And after pleading with him, you could only imagine, <laughs> the Pope finally said to her, all right, all right, you will enter if it's God's will. Very wise Pope. <laughs> Not wanting to leave the Holy Father's presence, two guards gently but firmly escorted Therese away. It's wonderful when she writes about that. She's like, I was just going to stay there. And they were like, you have to leave now. <laughs> but they did it very graciously. So Therese would see her entering to Carmel at the age of 15, entering on April 9th, 1888. She entered without any illusions and with great joy. Her nine years there would be transforming as God continued to work in the soul of Therese, and Therese would continue to work on what would be known as the Little Way. Prayer for Carmelites occupies about seven hours of their day, and another five is dedicated to work, which is always done in solitude. Therese was immediately tested when, about two years into being a Carmelite, the convent suffered a severe epidemic of influenza, in which many of the sisters got very sick and some even died. Therese was one of the few who was healthy enough to care for the sick and dying sisters. After the worst was over, she had gained the admiration and acceptance of most of the sisters. Yet many of the sisters of Carmel saw Therese as a simple little girl who became a good nun, but nothing more. The same would be said of St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta during her time as a Loretto sister. You know, they, they interviewed uh, the Loretto sisters as part of the canonization process, and, and even before, even when Mother Teresa was still alive, there were people that would go and interview the Loretto sisters because that's where she first was a sister. And then she had actually left the, the convent, which was kind of unusual for that time, and basically kind of went out into the city. She got an apartment, and she was discerning God's will. And, and I just love the stories she tells Somebody asked her, well, how did, how did all this happen, the missionaries of charity and all these houses for the poorest of the poor? And she said, well, I went out one day, and I saw a man lying in the gutter dying, and I picked him up, and I brought him home, and I couldn't stop picking them up. It was like so beautiful, so simple. I just kept picking them up, and that's, that's how all this grew. And St. Mother Teresa, they, 
basically the Red sister said there was nothing, nothing you would detect in her that was extraordinary, special, unique, different, that would have said that she was going to become known around the world for the love and service to the poorest of the poor. And so it's the same with, with, with Therese. Her sisters just saw her as just this ordinary person trying to live the life of a nun and trying to do that as well as she could. So it's a reminder to us that we don't have to be some extraordinary person in the way of having some unique talent or some you know, real special gift or in order for us to really and truly have a, a wonderful and positive and lasting effect on the people around us. It's living that gospel. It's just being faithful to our prayers. It's, it's living our lives with God's grace as best as we can and, and, and just trusting the rest of God. And if someday, you know, we are to be recognized, uh, canonized as a saint, you know, that's the Holy Spirit who's going to accomplish that. But we ourselves, you know, we want to make sure not only do we not see that we don't have to be extraordinary or special to do the great things like St. Mother Teresa did in Calcutta or to even have that amazing spiritual insight of Teresa Lisieux to, to also not demean ourselves and to think, well, I'm so useless and worthless and no good that God could never get anything good out of me. You know, there's this, this recognition of, and that's what I love about St. Therese, is she just hands herself over to God as she is, of who she is, of what she is right now at this moment. It's just so beautiful because it's like it's not having to, to somehow prepare and get herself ready. She's just like, here, here, this is, this is it, Lord. This is, this is what you get. <laughs> and, and go ahead and take me. And that approach of coming to accept who we are is going to be fundamentally important to the little way. It doesn't mean we, we, we make that quip that some people say sometimes, you know, you just have to take me as I am. And I'm like, you know, when somebody says that to me, I'm like, no, I don't actually. Because um, the way you are might not be very good. And, but it's, it's coming actually to the deeper understanding of, Lord, this is who I am. I have come to understand and to see truly who I am. And it is that person that I now offer and give to you. That is a much different approach. And it really and truly understands that it's, it's in that ordinary, simple way that we ultimately surrender to God. So we ourselves, recognizing that we are called to live this little way, we can see how Therese herself began to develop this further. She writes, I want to seek the means of going to heaven by a little way that is very straight, very short, a completely new little way. To explain further what she means by this, she writes, 
We are in an age of inventions. Now there's no more need to climb the steps of a staircase. In rich homes, there are elevators that replace stairs to a great advantage. I would also like to find an elevator to lift me up to Jesus. Because I am too little to climb the rough staircase of perfection. So I sought in the holy books the indication of the elevator that is the object of my desire. And I read these words that came from the mouth of eternal wisdom. Let all who are simple come to my house. So I came, suspecting that I had found what I was looking for and wanting to know, God, what you would do with the simple little one who would respond to your call. I've continued my search, and here is what I have found. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. Oh, never have words more tender, more melodious, come to rejoice in my soul. The elevator that must lift me up to heaven is your arms, Jesus. For that, I do not need to become big. On the contrary, I have to stay little. May I become little more and more. This is a great turning point for her, a great insight into the little way. And it is at this point that we'll begin to enter more deeply into the story of a soul to learn how the little way is truly practiced and how we can all achieve it in our lives. Her name, Little Flower, comes from a beautiful passage that she wrote in her autobiography. In chapter 1, she writes, I understood that all the flowers that he, God, created are beautiful. The brilliance of the rose and the whiteness of the lily don't take away the perfume of the lowly violet or the delightful simplicity of the daisy. I understand that if all the little flowers wanted to be roses, nature would lose its springtime adornment, and the fields would no longer be sprinkled with little flowers. Therese understood that not everyone is a Leo or Gregory the Great. Not everyone is a St. Catherine of Siena. Not everyone is a St. Joan of Arc. Nor is everyone a St. Peter or Paul. She goes on to write, Jesus wanted to create great saints who would be compared to lilies and roses. But he also created little ones, and these ought to be content to be daisies or violets destined to gladden God's eyes when he glances down at his feet. Perfection consists in doing his will, in being what he wants us to be. That is such a powerful statement. Perfection consists in doing his will, in being what he wants us to be. Remember that saying from the television commercials for the U.S. Army, be all that you can be? That is from St. Therese of Lisieux. Perfection consists in doing God's will, not doing everything perfectly. See, that's where we get hung up. That is where we make the mistake. We think we have to do everything perfect, and if we don't do it perfect, then we're a failure. 
Perfection is doing God's will. That is what we should be focusing on. That's what we should be desiring. So when we try to do everything perfectly, you know, what, what usually happens? We will fall short. We might do things well, even very well. But how often do we do them perfectly? It does not take long for us to become frustrated with ourselves or others because things are not perfect. And frustration leads to anger, and this anger leads to negative words or actions. When we seek to do God's will perfectly, we completely abandon our soul to God, recognizing that we are imperfect. That is so important. We have to recognize, I am imperfect, God. And I have to admit that, I have to own that, and I have to be, in a certain, to a certain degree, I have to be at peace with that. And so it's then in our weakness, because we see now, I am imperfect, I am weak, that we then allow God to be our strength. And we allow the Holy Spirit now to guide us. Because we are completely open to following wherever that Holy Spirit leads. We are completely open to his grace. As Therese states, I understood that our Lord's love is revealed as well in the simplest soul who doesn't resist his grace in anything as in the most sublime souls. Just as the sun shines at the same time on the tall cedars and on each little flower, as if it were the only one on earth, in the same way our Lord is concerned particularly for every soul as if there were none other like it. This is a beautiful description of the unconditional love God has for every soul that he has created. It reminds me of a time when I was visiting with the then Cardinal Ratzinger, later to be Pope Benedict XVI, When you were speaking with him, he focused those deep blue German eyes directly on you. And he gave you his full attention. And he treated you as though you were the only one in the room. Such graciousness, kindness, and gentleness was present in that encounter with him. Here I was, a mere seminarian, visiting with one of the greatest theological minds in the church, and yet being treated with a dignity and respect as though we were equals. Therese goes on to write, Always the Lord has been for me, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therese then writes of a central theme that we will return to later, that of mercy. The flower that is, going to, that is going to tell its story rejoices in having to publish abroad the completely undeserved kindness of Jesus. It recognizes that nothing in itself was capable of attracting his divine glance and that his mercy alone has made everything that there is of good in it. In recounting various stories from her childhood, Therese wrote of an incident where her older sister, Leonie, having outgrown her dolls, 
decided to give the dolls dresses and alls to Celine and Therese. Therese. Celine took the little ball of yarn, but Therese said, I choose all. There it is again. <laughs> her, her sister takes one ball of yarn, and Therese takes all the rest. <laughs> While an innocent enough story, it shows to some degree the approach that Therese will make central to her little way to choose God completely. I want all. I want all of you, God. She writes, Then just as in the days of my childhood, I cried out, Dear God, I choose all. I don't want to be a halfway saint. It doesn't scare me to suffer for you. I'm afraid of only one thing, and that is to hold on to my will. Take it, because I choose all. All that you want. Cardinal Sarah, who I have great respect for, he is one of the most humble and holy cardinals we have in the church. He's written several books, and one of his books is God or Nothing. And he just released a a newer book that I've begun reading that is just amazing and powerful. And I'll have a bibliography for you, uh, so giving references to all these different books and such that I talk about. And Cardinal Sarah, he speaks eloquently of this in his book, God or Nothing, in which he states, The Carmelite nuns, by their pure, demanding way of life, show an everlasting hope in the word of God, Jesus Christ. They possess abundantly in the simple, beautiful, exemplary confidence of little children. They have confidence because God truly suffices for them. They know that God will not deceive them. The key to such great self-denial in everyday life is confidence, prayer, and absolute love for God. Love is a fire. This blaze inflames them with a desire that not, is not immediately directed toward action, but rather directed toward God alone. Another insight that we get from Teresa's childhood was that as she matured and something was done that she didn't particularly like, she never complained. Or even if something was taken from her that rightfully belonged to her, she did not require it back. And if she was unjustly accused, she held out her tongue. She she held her tongue and did not try to excuse herself. This, too, would become a central part of the little way. Yet, as we, will, we shall see, it was not a practice that Therese had yet perfected, as she would have to first pass through what she terms the winter of trial, that is, the various sufferings which we spoke of earlier. The challenge that we have in learning the little way is in its radical simplicity. As human beings, one of our greatest talents is for complicating things. We should be simple and straightforward, and yet we make things cumbersome and tedious. Think of what Jesus says in the gospel. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the first thing that someone immediately says to him 
Who is my neighbor? The answer, of course, is everyone. Everyone. No exceptions. Yet we want the exceptions, the loopholes, the qualifications. The little way does away with all of this. Just as Jesus did in the gospel story. Love God and love your neighbor. Simple, direct, obvious.